Yeah. The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9 11 itself. Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, waging the all-out struggle for truth since 2006. You can find me at truthjihad.com where you can subscribe and get early access to these shows. And you can support revolution.radio by going to that website. It's not a .com or a .edu or a .net or anything like that. It's just revolution.radio. And they have fantastic archives, a great bunch of hosts, and ways that you can keep the whole operation afloat. This is listener-sponsored free speech here. And we're going to get into some free speech topics on topics you're not really supposed to speak so freely about tonight. And let's see, the second hour, end of the show, Eric Zeus comes on and nominates General Douglas McGregor, sorry, Colonel Douglas McGregor for president. And in the first half of the hour, Eric Wahlberg discusses his new book review, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Girl, and also uh, expresses his dismay with the media's moronic anti-Russia propaganda. Now, the first hour is about to get into gear and bringing back Richard Cook. He's famous as the NASA whistleblower who blew up the space shuttle Challenger disaster cover-up. He didn't blow up the Challenger itself. The uh, idiots uh, at NASA and so on, and ultimately in the White House, did that. Uh, but he blew up their cover-up, and he's been doing all kinds of good work ever since, including publishing great articles at Veterans Today. And his latest is called Pro-Zionist U.S. Politicians Dead Set on War with Russia. Well, that's already a taboo headline, so let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, Richard Cook. How's it going? Okay. Uh, I, I guess we'll say it's going okay. Uh, we're still here talking. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's can't take that for granted anymore, can you? <laughs> we'll, we'll take our little victories where we can. Um, but as, as we were saying uh, when we started, and, and forgive me, I'm going to try to be very careful with my wording of some of these things because I think it's important to try to be precise in the terms that we use and what we're talking about. Uh, it's so easy uh, to give the opposition ammunition, uh, which they readily use by calling us conspiracy theorists or anti-Semitic or whatever the label may be. So trying to uh, avoid those kind of uh, simplistic issues uh, will allow us, I think, to delve a little bit more deeply into into some of these things. Uh, in things I've written, particularly in Veterans Today, I've mentioned a writer, uh, a British journalist uh, from the mid-20th century named Douglas Reed. And uh, I don't know uh, how familiar uh, listeners and, and readers are with Douglas Reed. Uh, he was quite well known in his day. Uh, he was uh, a reporter for the London Times. And uh, as an example of, of how he uh, figured into historical uh, developments, 
he was an eyewitness when the Nazis marched into Vienna and took over Austria. And uh, Douglas Reed got the last train out of Austria uh, to uh, Switzerland when the Anschluss took place, uh, I, I think it was 1938. So he was quite a prominent uh, journalist at the time. Uh, he kind of uh, retired into the background to write his most famous book. The Controversy the of question, Zion, which is a controversial title, isn't it? <laughs> right, The Question of Zion. Uh, and uh, it documented many of the key events of the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, especially the two world wars, which he characterized, to be a little bit simplistic, as a kind of smokescreen for the establishment of the Zionist state in Israel. And of course, the funding of the Zionist state was uh, international uh, finance, which we usually associate with People like the Rothschilds, but of course they were only the most prominent uh, financiers of the era. There were many other people involved uh, in the international uh, financial world that uh, uh, control events, including uh, the two world wars. And uh, uh, Jacob Schiff is, a, is another name that figures prominently. Uh, one of their projects was the creation of the Federal Reserve System uh, in the United States, which, of course, is at the center of the uh, financial uh, machinery that runs the Western world. Uh, one of the uh, uh, results of the world wars was the uh, destruction of the empires that pretty much dominated Western life uh, for centuries, including uh, the Russian Empire, which was taken over by Bolshevism in 1917, 1918, the destruction of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German, the Ottoman Empires, all wrecked in World War I, uh, the destruction of the Persian Empire following the takeover of India, and the destruction of the autonomy of China by Britain and the other European powers. So this money power uh, was behind all of these events, and the military muscle gradually moved uh, to, over toward the United States because the defeat of the central powers, the old empires in Europe, uh, required the muscle of the United States when Britain was on the verge of collapse in, in both world wars. So the, the focal point of the military arm of, uh, all of this moved to the United States and that's where it rests today. Uh, the word Zionism has gone out of fashion. Uh, the, well, it's taboo. It's taboo now, Richard. If if you put use the word Zionist on Facebook, uh, or at least at one point, I don't know if it's still true. You get a little message, you know, telling you to stop and think about how you're using it. Okay. Okay. I, I'm not on. I got off Facebook quite a while ago. Uh, good move. So, uh, that yeah, I'm not surprised. So you can't use that term anymore. You're 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 labeled anything you say in that uh, of that ilk 
is labeled as anti-Semitic and as a conspiracy theory, but a new phrase has come into being, which I think is, is, is pretty, pretty good and pretty descriptive, and that probably that's the phrase we should now use, new world order. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, taboo, too. The, oh, is it? I, I oh, think so, okay. yeah. I mean, they'll call you a, a conspiracy theorist, and they might call you an okay. anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist because they know that people who understand <laughs> okay. the New World Order also understand that, you know, there's a certain uh, ethnic preponderance behind it. Right. Well, uh, at, at, at least that, that term uh, does seem to be current. People seem to know what you're talking about when you use those words. And so I, I think probably that's that's what we'll uh, we'll focus more on now. Uh, but let's just characterize it. What is the what is the new world order? We, we, uh, it really shouldn't be taboo because it was used prominently by George Herbert Walker Bush. He made the term famous uh, in one of his speeches back in the I, I guess it was the uh, uh, the late uh, 1980s. But I, 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 I thought that, that was actually on, on, on a, he made that speech on September 11th. And wasn't that like during the Gulf War lead up or the period of the first Gulf War? Yes. Yes. It was the first the first Gulf War, uh, which he you know, he used the term to justify uh, the attack on uh, Iraq, because obviously those, those terrible Iraqis. Uh, were backward and uh, 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 evil and, and barbaric, and so we were going to replace all of that with the new world order, which was the uh, what Reagan called the city on the hill, which Obama later called the exceptional nation, and, and, and so on and so forth. But what it really is is a is Zionism by another name. Uh, and but by a name that uh, tries to appear more benign, but it's really a materialistic philosophy that seeks to control the entire world population, all the nations of the world. And I think philosophically, it, the, the the fact that it is based on materialism means ultimately subjecting humanity entirely to uh, our animalistic impulses. Uh, it creates a society that Hobbes centuries ago characterized very aptly as the war of each against all. Uh, it's based on acquisition and all of that comes to play in the marketplace that is run by money and interest on money. And I spent quite a few years in the U.S. Treasury Department and later wrote a book about uh, the uh, way that the banking system creates money through lending, through creation of debt. And so you have these massive mountains of debt that lay behind the financial system that always have to be renewed by new uh, uh, activity by by uh, increasing the GDP and by inflation. And uh, it's the existence of these massive amounts of debt that also create this massive ongoing inflation 
that has been uh, destroying the currency of uh, the U.S. and the dollar now ever since uh, the Reagan years when the banking system pretty much took control of, of the entire uh, world economy. So all of this is what is coming along as the force that is driving U.S. imperialism. Uh, it, it's the force that, in my opinion, uh, drove the false flag events of 9-11 and resulted in wars uh, and attacks on Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Sudan, Yemen, Syria, and so on. And in Europe, it drove uh, uh, the expansion of NATO to the east because Russia was always viewed as a nation that wasn't really going along. Of course, when it was the Soviet Union, it was the obvious fact of the Cold War. But then when the Cold War supposedly ended and we were supposed to get the peace dividend uh, in the 1990s, well, of course, that didn't happen. What happened instead was this huge expansion in NATO and the movement of NATO and uh, U.S. military muscle into Eastern Europe uh, and that brings us to where we are today. So, Richard, let me uh, question like some of the sort of lumping together that you're doing here in terms of Zionism being lumped together with the uh, New World Order project of expanding uh, American-style liberal or neoliberal capitalism, uh, based debt-based capitalism all over the world. And since Zionism is generally defined as the project of establishing and endlessly expanding a so-called Jewish state in occupied right. Palestine. That's a very particular project focusing on that one part of the world. And it is true that many of the world's biggest uh, financial groups of families and individuals uh, generally, in fact, essentially all of them of the uh, Jewish ethnic persuasion have supported that project in occupied Palestine while also um, being the biggest players in the sort of uh, debt money machine that's taking over the world through this neoliberal capitalism. But I'm not sure the two projects are entirely the same. If we consider, you mentioned George H.W. Uh, Bush mentioning the New World Order in that famous speech. Well, George H.W. Bush had a lot of battles with the Israelis in fact, there was even right. an apparent Israeli attempt to assassinate him. So he may have been a player in the New World Order plan, but he may not have been particularly fond of the state of Israel. And if we look at the 9-11 wars, which clearly were it almost entirely for the benefit of the state of Israel and uh, created for that purpose. In other words, 9-11 was essentially a, a false flag for the benefit of Israel to hijack the American military to destroy Israel's enemies. Versus the current war on Russia, where you know, rather than having Israel cheerleading all the way, as it was with the 9-11 wars, instead, Israel is being coy, not sanctioning Russia, playing the mediator, and uh, and so on. So there's a, a different uh, position there uh, but, you know, with 9-11 versus the war on Russia. And to me, that indicates that there may be a difference between Zionists, that is, people who are ideologically committed to the Jewish state in Palestine and, and maybe eventually trying to rule the world from there versus just neoliberal capitalism and the big players in that project who just want to expand their empires all over the world. 
Yeah, that, that's that, that's uh, all very true. And I was going to try to make a point uh, with that later on. But uh, look at the uh, 2014 um, coup in uh, Ukraine, where the uh, you know the CIA and other other uh, Western intelligence forces were obviously behind that and who shows up uh in kiev uh is one of the leading neocons that is one of the leading uh, uh, members of that whole uh zionist uh cult uh who created the wars coming out of 9-11 was victoria newland uh she was right there in the very center of it and I would argue that it's the neocons uh, uh, who created uh, the, the whole uh, complex of ideas declaring the U.S. to be uh, the uh, sole military uh, dominant power, you know, full spectrum dominance uh, in the world. And uh, the idea uh, the Wolfowitz doctrine that no other power or com- uh, combination of power could ever be allowed to uh, challenge the dominance of the United States military. They were the same people. <laughs> the mm, same what a coincidence. This, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what a coincidence. It was not yeah. a coincidence. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is that the, it's the same neocon, uh, uh, New World Order, Slash Zionist, you can almost the terms are almost interchangeable. That created uh, uh, the all of the wars of the current century that are doing exactly the same thing and are in fact actors in the current attack on Russia because the the taking that Russia's Russia has a, such a strong presence now in the Middle East and how they came in to um, bail out Syria. Uh, of how they stand behind Iran. Uh, the chief obstacle to carrying out the complete program of 9-11, uh, you know, the destruction of all those nations that, uh, that, that they, they made a list of them, the chief obstacle to that has been Russia, has been Putin. And the, the, there's another factor that no one talks about uh, I, I read somewhere uh, a number of years ago that the chief geopolitical fact of the modern world, of the 20th century, and now we're in the 21st, is nuclear weapons. It's who has them, who controls them, and who uh, has the ability to uh, deploy them, uh, and you never hear this discussed. Although when Putin put uh, the Russian uh, full uh, retaliatory uh, mechanism on alert, uh, then it got attention. And he did that, he said, because of a, of a statement that was made by the British foreign minister uh, threatening uh, Russia with existential uh, uh, retaliation. And so suddenly this is now coming out in the open. 
and uh, what we've realized, what the U.S. has, has known, but now uh, it's becoming more known, is that Russia sitting there with 5,000 nuclear weapons. The U.S. has about 5,000, too. There's parity. But nobody else has anything close to that. So the question of who controls those 5,000 nukes on either side is kind of the final question in world geopolitics today. And the idea that they want to instigate regime change in Russia or to break Russia down into, uh, you know, half a dozen statelets, you hear it, it expressed in different ways. But that's the real target. The real target yeah. is who controls those nukes, because as long as they're not in the hands of somebody the U.S. controls, they are there uh, available to be used against the U.S. if the U.S. goes too far in in provoking uh, such a response. Well, what do you think of the Chinese claim that they only need enough nukes to completely destroy the United States once? <laughs> And that's enough and that they can um, continue to outstrip the U.S. economically and then ultimately technologically and finally militarily. But there's no hurry. That seems to be the Chinese approach. And China is widely considered by geopolitical experts to be the U.S.'s only real peer competitor. And it's usually considered that, that Russia's uh, nuclear weapons are kind of an anomaly because Russia doesn't have such a big economy and that China is the right. real geopolitical issue. What do you think of that? Yeah, and that's uh, that's what the uh, the Chinese have said. Uh, when Biden called uh, Jinping to complain about uh, they're, they're not uh, exercising enough sanctions against Russia, uh, there was uh, something published, I think, the day after by a, a publicist within the Chinese government uh, along the lines of, well, what you're saying is first you're going to take down Russia, and then once you've done Russia, you're going to come after us. And I think that expresses it pretty well. Uh, right. But for whatever reason, uh, the U.S. made a decision somewhere along the way to put the uh, pedal to the metal. And I think Ukraine is putting the pedal to the metal. I think they're trying to bring this to some kind of a head before China can do what you're describing. That is, take the long uh, route uh, to uh, the obvious inevitable dominance. Uh, I think the U.S. is trying to prevent that. But Russia stands in the way. Russia is standing in the doorway with its arsenal. And the U.S. is going to uh, try to put enough pressure on Russia that uh, there will be a revolution in Russia that will be like Yeltsin, you know, and uh, where the uh, New World Order can step in and take over without uh, without a uh, cataclysmic uh, fight. Mm-hmm. So they're they're hoping to knock off Russia and then deal with China, which strikes me as a kind of a strange strategy. It would make more sense to maybe befriend Russia, uh, since China is the real threat. The usual geopolitical logic is for the number one power 
to do everything it possibly can to ally itself with the number three power against the rising number two power. And so that would dictate that the U.S. should be friends with Russia, or do it, be bending over backward to be nice to Russia uh, in order to have Russia on its side as much as possible uh, because the real showdown is going to be with China. So that that's what I gather from the realist school of geopolitics, which seems to me to be the sane school. And the the, uh, the neoliberals like Fukuyama and the neoconservatives all strike me as being completely insane and uh, deluded and drugged by their bizarre extremist ideologies, whereas the realists are basically describing the real world. And given that, it seems to me that from the standpoint of U.S. empire, it's a it's a real strategic mistake to be uh, creating unnecessary hostilities with Russia and perhaps even more so with Iran. And that's a, that's another thing. Uh, do you think do you, do you agree with me or is there some strategic logic to provoking this fight with Russia? Kevin, I have been saying that for years, that the U.S., the national interest of the U.S. is to renew the alliance with Russia that won World War II. It took, uh, you know, Germany was trying to create the uh, situation of the dominant European power uh, that would then rule the world. It was the same thing Spain tried to do, same thing France tried to do, same thing Napoleon tried to do, and then Germany tried to do it. And eventually the whole thing was defeated by the alliance between the island nations, the islands being Britain and the U.S., the U.S. being an island relatively, and Russia. Uh, it was the same alliance that defeated Napoleon. Yeah, we should have allied with Russia, particularly after communism fell, when Russia was becoming a more liberal, if not uh, in the U.S. model, at least a more a more democratic liberal state. Yeah, we should have allied, and Putin wanted to do that. Putin approached the U.S. to become part of NATO. I understand. I don't have a exact citation of that. But it's my understanding from what I've read that he attempted to do that. Clinton rebuffed him. Uh, Clinton was the one who spearheaded the attack uh, on Yugoslavia uh, with the help of a guy named Biden in the Senate uh, who was beating the drums for war against Yugoslavia. So we had our chance then to join with Russia as a peacekeeper which would have had tremendous benefits in the Middle East uh, and in dealing with China. Yes, I, I totally, totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems ironic to me that this American imperial policy has been so counterproductive and wrongheaded on so many levels, not to mention grossly immoral, and that the people driving it the hardest are the neoconservatives. And right. as you've pointed out, those neoconservatives have a dual loyalty. They're, they're fanatical ideological foot soldiers for both Israel and U.S. empire, and they try to sort of lump those two things together. What's good for Israel is good for America uh, and vice versa. And right. there may be a certain amount of uh, truth to that. Uh, there's, uh, let's see, the, the book From Yahweh to Zion by Laurent Guyano, which I translated from French goes into that question of the history of the Zionist involvement in instigating the world wars 
and then in instigating the Cold War and right. preventing the Cold War from ever ending uh, or ending prematurely, uh, right. stoking the fires of the Cold War. Uh, Lauren Guyano argues that the Zionists murdered John F. Kennedy not only to prevent him from shutting down Israel's nuclear program at Demona and, and, and then putting uh, Johnson, uh, who was very Zionist friendly in his place, and not only to get somebody friendly in the White House so the Zionists could steal that land in their 1967 war of aggression, but also right. to keep the Cold War going because the Cold War was a huge distraction from the Israeli plans for 1967. If there hadn't been a Vietnam quagmire, it would have been much harder to get away with that uh, ridiculous uh, war of aggression in 67. And so Guinot argues that the Cold War served Zionist interests, that the neocons are people who often you know, started as Trotskyites or whatever. And then they realized that they had this deep attachment to Israel and that a strong U.S. military and a strong U.S. empire was good for Israel because, of course, the Zionists have so much power here in the United States. So they right. uh, tried. They became extreme hawks uh, and wanted more military money. They became Team B, and they pushed for all these wars, especially wars against countries that gave Israel a hard time. But you could argue, ironically, that these Zionists who think that they're protecting Israel, these neocons, rather, they think they're protecting Israel by having a really extreme, bellicose, hawkish American policy, but they may have undermined uh, American strength uh, by doing that. That is, by hijacking American power with the 9-11 false flag uh, and forcing the U.S. to spend 7 or $8 trillion and ruin its reputation in these insane Middle Eastern wars for the, just for Israel and for nothing else. And now, right. by pushing the U.S. into war with Russia, that very well may erode American power. And so if their task is to try to have a new American century of the U.S. unilaterally ruling, ruling the world so it can protect Israel, uh, they may not be doing such a good job of it. Yeah, and um, uh, I think you need to factor into this. Uh, in the background, you've got the massive U.S. military industrial complex which, of course, has a lot more players than just the military and, and the war industry. You've got the intelligence complex. You've got the university complex that lives off of that. <clears throat> You've got the mainstream media that beats the drums for war 24-7. Uh, you've got the uh, Facebooks and the uh, Googles that, uh, and the Wikipedias that are pretty much run by the intelligence agencies. Uh, the word CIA should be thrown in here because, you know, they've been in there training the uh, neo-Nazis in Ukraine uh, in their preparations for the attack on the Donbass that uh, Putin evidently preempted. So you've got a massive vested interest. I mean, all these people make a lot of money. And the people who run, who finance uh, these things make a lot of money. For instance, uh, there are 43,000 employees of Goldman Sachs. And of course, Goldman Sachs, being investment bankers, have a very big stake in the military industrial complex. Those 43,000 employees earn on the average $404,000 a year. 
Wow. That's pretty high. Yeah, I, I think maybe we're, I, I, what am I doing in trips to $15 an hour. And you've got 43,000 people making that kind of money just for uh, pushing financing around uh, and buying and selling these these businesses, uh, so many of which uh, are involved in very destructive activity. I mean, the, the weaponry, and then you look at the whole bio-warfare industry that Russia has exposed to the world now in Ukraine. Think of the vested interests in that industry, the number of well-paid people who are earning money, a lot of money, by making weapons of mass destruction. It's just staggering, uh, the vested interests and the snowball effect all of that has on policy. Because these are the people who donate money to the politicians, who make the decisions, who, who pay the lobbyists on K Street in Washington, D.C. Uh, there's a massive uh, amount of money going in now uh, to lobby to these lobbyists to come up with slogans for Zelensky. Zelensky's speech to the uh, U.S. Congress was written by two lobbyists from K Street in Washington. What a world. And you wonder if they brought in Hill and Knowlton uh, for some of these uh, you know, blowing up theaters and hospitals. Uh, when they blew up the maternity hospital or supposedly you know, killed all, all these expectant mothers, although we only got one picture of uh, one woman, right. uh, maybe two, but they, they both look pretty much like the same woman to me. I've heard others argue right. that there, there are two. But in any case, the maternity hospital stunt sure reminded a lot of people of the Kuwaiti-Iraqi baby incubator incident where yeah. the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter was yeah. posing as a nurse and making up a nonsense story about the evil Iraqi right. soldiers bashing the brains out of the poor little babies. Uh, and, right. and now we have a maternity hospital. Heart, there's all this heart-tugging emotional propaganda really does look staged and manufactured. And, and now it looks like that theater incident in Mariupol was also another of these false flag uh, public relations stunts and possibly a very murderous one. It looks like it was the Azov neo-Nazis who may have actually put people into that theater and then at least partially blown it up and maybe uh, killed some of them, although it's, it seems questionable still how many actually died. Well, if you follow the uh, the daily news reports, which, which you do, obviously, and, and a lot of people listening do, uh, that you can only find on places like Veterans Today or uh, the Saker or, or uh, if, if you can still get SputnikNews.com, uh, this kind of stuff is going on every day now in Ukraine with the hostages being held by the Azov Battalion. There's supposedly over 100,000 uh, citizens in Mariupol that are still being held captive by the Azov Battalion, uh, even as the Russian and the Chechen uh, and the uh, Donbass militias kind of now are going room to room in some of these uh, strongholds to root them out. It's just constant and now they're saying they're going to do the same thing in Odessa because at some point the uh, Russian are, uh, and, and the Donbass militias have to reduce Odessa and uh, Zelensky already has one of his hardliners in there declaring that nobody will get out of Odessa so yeah it's it, and, and the incredible thing 
with all of this is how stupid and gullible the American public is that swallows this stuff night and day when the contradictory sources are so easy to find. Well, I wonder if this war hysteria that's totally coming from this media propaganda wave is maybe a mile wide and an inch deep. You know, people get very excited on Twitter and, and they, you know, they start breathing heavily as they treat and we retweet and counter tweet. But then, uh, I'd, I'd wonder if like, you know, five days, five months later, certainly five years later, they'll, they'll even remember any of this. Um, you know, there's definitely, I don't think there's a real profound emotional shock to ordinary people, uh, regarding this war on Russia in the same way there was with 9-11 and the war on Islam, that people were, were really horrified and shocked by the uh, controlled demolition of the World Trade Center and the, the images on television. And I don't think there's been anything remotely like that that people really take personally regarding this media coverage of Ukraine. It's almost like it's, it's at a video game level, which is why you have a whole bunch of losers uh, volunteering to go fight for Ukraine and then discovering they've been caught over there and they, their passports have been confiscated and, and they have no military training and they're, they're handed some rifle that they don't know how to use and set up to the front lines and to get killed. Uh, or, or they go to a base to get trained and, and the base gets blown up by a Russian hypersonic missile. Uh, it does seem to me that this propaganda is, oh, it's overwhelming in its ubiquity, but is it really affecting people at a deep emotional level? I don't know. I mean, what do you, what do you think? Is, is it working? Is it, is it going to permanently, uh, uh, hello, Richard, are you there? I think we lost Richard. I got a message that Richard may have dropped. Hopefully we'll pull him back up. There you are. Yeah. Well, I was just questioning the efficacy of this prophet. Yeah. Hi. Can, can you hear me, Richard? Yeah. I can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I was, I was wondering whether this wall to wall mainstream media propaganda is working as well as it appears. That is uh, online. You get a whole lot of people sort of saying ditto. And you don't see too much questioning except from, you know, a Tucker, Tucker Carlson here, a Tulsi Gabbard there. But I don't know. I, I just wonder if uh, this isn't happening at a very superficial level rather than sort of a deep-seated shock that people felt after 9-11. I am seeing more and more uh, uh, people in the U.S. and in other Western countries uh, if you look at the comments on different websites and some of the things that are, are getting through in, on the Internet who are seeing through all of this, uh, I think there's a tremendous growing awareness uh, of the hypocrisy and the lie. Well, Putin called it the empire of lies. Yeah, that's a and great phrase, isn't it? I, I, I should phrase. copyrighted that. <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous that he, yeah. he got it first. Yeah. In fact, uh, there's a, some people uh, I've seen are now, they're not saying New World Order anymore. They're saying Empire of Lies. Uh, I think Pepe Escobar is doing that. Yeah, and, I've uh, done it a few times myself. I hope I don't have to yeah. pay any copyright fees to Putin. <laughs> right. But it, that's the, that's the, the accurate phrase. And, and I do agree with you that many, many people today, including in, a, in the U.S. and in the West, or seeing through that. And, uh, yeah, I become a, a Tucker Carlson fan overnight. 
Yeah, well, I always kind of like Tucker. You know, I, I don't agree with him all the time, and he can be kind of annoying in his mannerisms occasionally. And I was yeah. not as enthralled with Trump as he was at one point. But uh, you have to admit that he is more uh, interesting, lively, um, open-minded, and willing to bring on uh, interesting, provocative points of view than anybody else in the mainstream. Right. And so, yeah, there is a truth movement growing up here, a Ukraine truth movement, and it's probably a lot further along than the 9-11 truth movement was at a comparable right. stage, like a month after 9-11. Here right. we're a month or, what, a month and a half after this Ukraine thing blew up, and uh, there's already a big truth movement in place. And right. They're trying to censor us, of course, but they haven't right. really brought down the hammer yet. I mean, you know, it seems like there are denial of service attacks here and there, but uh, you know, there, there are no really um, you know, major consequences to putting out, let's say, a, a pro-Russia-Ukraine video on YouTube, uh, right. at least that I've seen. Um, do you think they'll start censoring those? I don't think they can. Uh, and particularly, one thing that has happened that I think has really galvanized opinion on this has been the discovery of the bioweapons labs in Ukraine. Yes. Uh, and, uh, of course, Tucker got on that bandwagon after uh, Victoria Nuland admitted uh, before Congress that there were such things, and she immediately tried to make excuses for it, uh, as did uh, Senator Rubio, who was questioning her. But that thing has really taken off, and with the uh, the Russians now publishing, releasing the documents, uh, specifying the types of research that has been going on in these places, and now the last couple of days we're seeing that uh, Hunter Biden has been involved in financing uh, uh, things that are going on in these labs, and that is a huge, huge story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if uh, his laptop stuff all comes out now, and uh, well, they're, they're... started to come out, that has started to come out again. Now, what, what do you think's going on there? Uh, there are some conspiracy-minded people over at the UNS Review, which is another of the websites where you can mm-hmm. find uh, interesting, right. provocative, non-mainstream information on these topics, who think that maybe the uh, neocons and their allies are using the Hunter laptop story to pressure Biden into a more bellicose policy because these people apparently see Biden as a kind of a closet peacenik, at least relative to the other people in the Democratic War Party. He was supposedly the most peacenik of anybody in the Obama administration. Hillary Clinton was far more bellicose and warlike. And and so Biden was never a big enthusiast for the wars and right. we saw that he came, he got us right out of Afghanistan. Uh, Trump wanted to, but he couldn't, but Biden did. Right. And right. so Biden is, is really, you know, I, I'm not crazy about the guy to say the least, but he's not really, he doesn't appear to be a war fanatic. And so according to one interpretation of this, the reason that this laptop scandal just reared its ugly head again and the New York Times finally admitted, oh yeah, well, it really was his laptop. Well, duh, we all right. knew that. Uh, they're preparing to threaten Biden and hold a gun to his head by saying, okay, uh, you can either uh, get us into World War III and kill billions of people and destroy civilization, or we're going to splatter Hunter's kitty porn selfies all over the front page of the New York Times. So which will it be? And, and I, I just dropped a comment over at Un saying, that's quite a Sophie's choice for uh, for Mr. Biden, isn't it? Yeah, I, I tend to 
view that kind of thing as rather superficial. Mm-hmm. I mean, Biden has turned down the no-fly zone. He said there will be no engagement between U.S. and Russian military forces. Uh, in fact, he even said that it's up to Ukraine whether they give up territory to Russia, uh, which opens the door for what a lot of people are talking about as the likely solution, and that is a partition of Ukraine. And uh, uh, there are people in Russia who believe that once that is done, then gradually the Europeans will start uh, realizing they need to buy Russian uh, 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 hydrocarbons and wheat and so on, and the whole thing will start to revert back to normal. And Biden may be playing a game where he's seeming to go along with all of this noise uh, against Russia, realizing that it's it may blow over. And mm-hmm. I don't think Biden can be pressured. I mean, he, Biden's been through a lot in his life. Uh, his wife and daughter were killed in an accident. His son died from brain cancer. Uh, I think Biden is, if he lives, <laughs> mm, it's a big he's a tough guy. And, uh, uh, interesting. I don't so, think so, he's subject to that kind of pressure. So maybe he's he's not so bad. I mean, a lot, a lot of folks now are blaming him for the situation. And certainly if Biden had any gumption when Putin made his ultimatum, Biden should have said, yeah, we need to talk about this and scheduled a summit and been very proactively presidential and gone over and sort of taken control of the situation and established a, a sort of an image of you know Biden being in charge here talking to Putin, who's requesting thing, you know, who, who needs something, but with his ultimatum and then worked something out with Putin. I mean, that it's kind well, of that would have been a no brainer. Why didn't he do that? It, it would have, except that things had gone so far. Uh, the Ukrainians, with NATO's backing, and uh, you never know how much Biden even knew about this, had 200,000 people along the borders of Donbass ready to attack uh, maybe in March. Uh Putin realized that he could not be on the defensive and that he had to go in and dismember Ukraine. So it may have gone too far for Biden to be able to say, whoa, uh, let's let's talk about it, because he had 200,000 essentially neo-Nazis primed with CIA advisors primed for war. Maybe that had to happen. You know, maybe Russia had to show its its power and unleash some of these incredible weapons where uh, hundreds of mercenaries at a, at a blow in West Ukraine are, are killed. Maybe that all had to happen. But Biden has not allowed it to go to the very end of that process. And that's a good thing. Well, I still think that when Putin made that ultimatum, had Biden seized the day and insisted on talking with him, and if Putin had said, look, there are 200,000 neo-Nazis about to come and kill everybody in the Donbass, uh, I'm not going to let this happen. Um, what do you say? Biden would have been in the position to dictate to Ukraine 
to withdraw those guys, right? I mean, you see, Ukraine well, we really can't do anything without U.S. support. We don't know that. Uh, the people pulling uh, Zelensky strings are not necessarily under the thumb of the U.S. They may be under the thumb of, uh, shall we say, Zionism? The neocons, yeah. Neocons, yeah. Right, right. Biden may not have had the ability at that time to control those people. Probably not. He may not have been getting good information either, which is another question. Right. Who, right. Who, who do you trust with information? It seems like the State Department is dominated by neocons these days. The uh, National Security Council has a bunch of them. It seems like the military may actually be the least worst institution. In the second hour, uh, Eric Zeus is going to nominate Douglas McGregor for president. Douglas McGregor okay. is one of those fair voices of right. sanity. Right. What, what do you think of that idea? Well, I think that the uh, you've got behind a lot of this uh, the CIA, and the CIA probably runs the State Department at this point, and the CIA reports to itself, uh, and it's always been that way. There's always been this tremendous uh, inability of presidents to really tap into and understand what they are doing behind the scenes. And I think it was, and, and if you want to say CIA, you've got to say CIA slash MI6 slash Mossad. Yeah. It's, it's, yep. the, it's, it's the same, uh, uh, subterranean, uh, complex. And if they're the ones in there pulling the strings and pushing the buttons and working Zelensky's mouth, then maybe Biden couldn't have done anything uh, at that point other than uh, what he has done thus far, which has been not all bad. Yeah, well, you know, Biden is uh, he's he's getting old. Uh, He probably isn't real high energy or super sharp anymore. And you can see how. Even if he's not that enthusiastic about starting a big war, that he might not have been in a position to prevent it from happening anyway. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and heaven help us if we get the vice president, the current vice president, stepping in there. Yeah, she seems to be pretty much uh, wired into the neocon machine, doesn't she? Well, she does, and she just seems to be in, uh, totally out of her depth uh, at this level. Right. I mean, her performance with the president of Poland was uh, tragic, almost, uh, how bad she made the U.S. look. So the Democrats have a uh, president who's looking you know, kind of borderline geriatric, not the world's worst guy, maybe, but right. uh, not a real impressive leader of the free world. And then they've got this totally pathetic uh, vice president who's right. flopped politically, and both of their Popularity ratings are way down. Biden's has, has hit yeah. its lowest point ever, and Harris is even right. worse. So right. what happens in the next set of elections uh, this year and then in 2024? Oh, what a question that is. Who knows? Uh, you've got Trump talking like he'll run again, but he probably won't. Uh, I think probably what I've said is that the next president, in my humble opinion, is Pence. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's not good news. No, but he he still may have adult impulses. Yeah, Mike Pence? Yeah. Hmm. He, he, he would 
Really? Because he, I mean, he's, uh, he, he seems to have some links with the anthrax attack and cover up of 2001. He's tied mm-hmm. in with these, you know, the Christian holy roller fundamentalist fanatics right. who link right. up with the worst of the hardline Zionist neocons. And so right. I, I would think he would be uh, a pretty dangerous character to have in the White House at a time when Armageddon is just around the corner because I don't know about him, but his school of thought welcomes Armageddon. That's when they're going to beam us all up, right? Well, you, you're probably right. I'm not, I'm, I'm not pumping for Pence. <laughs> good, good. I, I, I was starting I, to worry about you. <laughs> no, but I do believe he appears to me to be the most likely next president. Oh, man. Okay, I'm definitely leaving the country. I was just thinking about leaving the country until you said that. Now I'm I'm definitely – where's my passport? (laughs) With with DeSantis, maybe his running mate. Okay, DeSantis, uh, I I don't know about him. I mean, I kind of like some of his his COVID uh, crime think. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, He's got a libertarian impulse. And uh, I I saw a New York Times attack piece on him that – made him out to be really scary because he's so darn competent. So he's, he's like Trump, except he's he's super competent. You know, he he works from you know 5 a.m. every day, and he accomplishes more in a minute than most people do in an hour. So the, the New York well, Times is terrified yeah. of him. Right, the New York Times would be. What, what do you think? Um, I, I, I can't place a judgment on it, but to me, uh, if I were to bet, which I don't, I would uh, uh, bet on Pence and DeSantis as the next two. Mm. Well, DeSantis, uh, I, I don't think I would necessarily leave the country for him, but right. uh, but Pence, I've made you know. I hope I'm wrong about Pence, but my gut feeling and what I've seen about his being seemingly, at least tangentially, in league with the anthrax attack perpetrators and cover-up team, that makes me uh, really uh, wonder about about Pence and and what would happen if I mean if he's that much of a tool of the most extreme wing of the neocons that's not the guy you want as president when there's a potential world war 3 yeah that may be yeah i guess we don't always get what we want uh, <laughs> yeah. whether the world gets what it needs is another question right. too well we're, I we're just throw out one other one other yeah, idea one, one minute or less maybe th- or even 30 okay. seconds it won't take me long. Uh, what could make a difference? What if Bennett of Israel decided to get off the New World Order bandwagon and embrace the principle of multiplicity among world powers and really did make a sincere effort to mediate a settlement in Europe? Hmm. What if? Well, that that would be kind of... Well, that would be great, but it would be also nice if he would mediate a sell- settlement in occupied Palestine. <laughs> well, that's true. But I did run this idea by Gordon, and he said that uh, if that happened, peace might even break out. Wow. So this crazy uh, Zionist Israeli prime minister could actually hold the key to world peace. Uh, well, we could nominate him for a messiah, but uh, I don't know if I want to have a messiah uh, running the world from the rebuilt temple after they blow up the Mesjid al-Aqsa and start sacrificing pink heifers. But I, I'd <laughs> settle for the Nobel Peace Prize. There you go. Okay, <laughs> if, that, if you hear that, you might get a Nobel Peace Prize if you do the right thing. All right, well, hey, uh, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Kevin. Talking to you. 
Richard Cook, famous NASA whistleblower who exposed the Challenger disaster cover-up. Next hour, we're from Jim Eric Wilson, Radio Freedom's